From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland, and welcome to the second installment of the Change the Story Three Trickster series. Our next trickster, Salty Xi Jing, describes herself as a scholar of the cosmos. She goes on to say that her research of the everyday as performance bears fruit as tender presentation somewhere between art and life, with a focus on the body and what she refers to as its histories. She constructs portrayals of self and space that are ambiguous, raw, dreamlike, absurd, mundane, and she goes on to say that she is a cosmic clown floating at the intersections of wonder and melancholy, existential meditation, and devotional nonsense. In essence, a perfect manifestation of a 21st century trickster whose story and work we will explore this week and next. The Inside Show, The Inside Show, The Inside Show, latest fashion, cooking and singing, comedy sketches, microwave magic. The Inside Show, The Inside Show, The Inside Show. Welcome to The Inside Show, our first night here at the Columbia River Correctional Institution. I'm your host, Mark Arnold, and tonight we're going to be bringing you various uh, things in variety, like such as cooking shows, uh, music, some arts, and some sports talk. And tonight, we're happy to say we have Fred Armisen with us, our special guest host, who will be helping me in my endeavors here. Uh, Fred? Uh, Fred? Where are you? Fred? Yep, right here. Well, I'm just sitting here relaxing. Uh, I've got a nice, comfortable chair. I'm the guest. Right, Fred, but you're supposed to be guest hosting, which means you're supposed to be helping me introduce the guests and standing up here in your guest circle up here. And they get circles for you to stand at so the camera can see you better. Please just get up here and go in your circle, please. All right. Thank you. Okay, so anyway, Fred and... Um, Fred, what what are you doing? I said go in your circle, not go in a circle. Your well, circle. I misunderstood. You said the word circle, so I just went in a circle. Right, but I meant your circle. Oh, we mean the spot over here. Yeah. I call those spots. Do you have a hard time? A very Things hard like time. like driving and stuff? Driving, walking, yeah. sleeping, okay. uh, resting, Well, they're not going to have sitting. a hard time in our next segment. Okay. They know what they're doing. All right. So, enjoy. If you want to know what's happening inside Wadi, Inside Show, Inside Show. That was an interchange between Portlandia star and guest host Fred Armisen and show host Mark Arnold from a unique TV broadcast called The Inside Show. For regular listeners to this show, if you're thinking that inside is a reference to the hard time side of a prison wall, you would be spot on. You might not guess, though, that the show in question is a -a one-of-a-kind comedy, variety, cooking, art, and talk show written, produced, and performed by incarcerated artists at the Columbia River Correctional Institution in Portland, Oregon, along with this show's guest, Salty Shijiaing. Now, Salty describes herself as a citizen scholar of the cosmos who explores aging, intimacy, food, lineage, identity, ritual, and power while questioning who artists are, and what gets to be called art. 
She characterizes her work as the research of every day as performance that bears fruit as tender presentation somewhere between art and life. I would add that thus far in her fairly short but very busy career as an artist, she exhibits that unique combination of audacity, humility, and quirkiness that our listeners will recognize as intrinsic to many of the stories we share on the podcast. Salty's grandmother describes her work as, well, just projects. Curators often use the term genre-defying, and for good reason— Pull back the curtain, if there is one, and there's no telling what you'll find. A film, a party, an intimate discussion, a festival, a newspaper, a concert, a feast, and more often than not, an invitation to decide whether you want to participate as an audience member or as part of the show. Needless to say, she has lots of stories to share. So welcome to Salty Shijiaying, a citizen scholar of the cosmos, a two-episode presentation of Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, being yourself. So let me begin by asking a question about geography and place, which is where you are. So I'm currently in Portland, Oregon, United States of America. Although I am from Singapore, and the Portland metro area rests on the traditional sites of the Multnomah, Wasco, Cowlitz, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Bands of Chinook, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Malala, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. And I'm in Alameda, California, uh, which is right next to Oakland, and is the traditional unceded lands of the Ohlone people. So let me begin with this, the simple question, what is your work in the world? How do you describe it? Particularly to people who are not in the cloistered world of art making and academia. Mm. You mean my, my whole family? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yes. funny because my grandma or my grandparents, they just call it projects. Everything is, oh, it's a project. So there's like many different levels of versions of describing it. If I describe it in terms of tasks, I would describe it as dreaming up projects, initiating them, finding funding for them or not being, maybe I'm approached by someone to do it, managing and directing and curating them, publicizing them, documenting, adapting, presenting, and then when it's over, grieving them and staying in touch with the people they involve. In terms of form, I it could be gatherings, publications, performances, films, panel discussions, writing. And often the form starts as an idea. I think the idea is the essence or the seed of it. And then it manifests itself in some kind of more external way. And often I tell people that I make art mostly with others and then sometimes i say that i work with fantasy and reality inviting people to create semi-fictional worlds together based on premises for a future that we want and in being together in the world we create which is semi-fictional meaning it's both real and fantasy at the same time then that future that we would like to see starts to exist by the very fact of us gathering together. So for someone who is beginning to digest what you just said, who has a very traditional 
idea of you know, what artists do and what art is for, their question might be, to what end? Yeah, I think that is a huge question that people who work in social forms of art grapple with, and everyone will have a different um, answer or approach to that. There are people who work in terms of art for art's sake. There are people who work for social change, and then there's an in-between. There's a whole spectrum. There's the artist as savior complex, which is something that mm-hmm. I'm careful about. And then, and, and sometimes people deliberately decenter themselves when working with others. And that can be, for me, like a false thing to do as well, mm-hmm. like the erasure mm-hmm. of the artist. And this is a difficult and sensitive subject. And in considering all that, I think when Arts Walk invited me to write that essay that that I wrote for them recently, Mm -hmm. I came to the idea that I do the work I do as a way of creating spaces for people to be themselves. And also in the process of doing what I do, I am helping myself to become more of myself. It's a process Mm -hmm. of becoming for myself and for other people. So I'm going to quote you. One of the characteristics of many of the people that I speak to is a deep sense of humility that they bring to their work. And that is very clear to me from reading and watching your work. But here's the quote. For me, being yourself is allowing oneself to be taken into the mysterious reaches of who you think you are or could be. You go there and then see what happens. Because our society rarely facilitates that, art must which to me is, is a beautiful articulation of something that I, I may sound simple, but is, I think is quite profound. Thank you. Yeah, I think when people enter a space where they are invited to be creative or express themselves about something they might not usually be asked about, it's like this door opens and you get to maybe think in a way you hadn't before or shared something that you had not shared with many people or even with anyone. I felt that happen myself. I think in any artistic encounter, whether it's like a very traditional encounter of a painting in a gallery space or something that's more socially oriented, like sitting in a room with 15 other women talking about intimacy, for example. But encountering art brings that about. So being from Singapore, where at least in my experience, Asking questions can sometimes require indirect strategies, especially confronting difficult issues in the community. I'm wondering to what degree your practice reflects that experience, and particularly since you spent a significant amount of time in the U.S. as well. I think that in my practice, I try to ask difficult questions and approach more taboo subjects. And I think it's really important to do that, especially in a place where there isn't a lot of freedom to express yourself. Mm -hmm. It is also a place that needs artists very much. Mm -hmm. And it's a difficult landscape to make art in, but it is also a really fertile one to engage in. A lot of my artistically formative years was spent in the U.S. when I did my MFA here at Portland. But the work I've done in Singapore, I feel, has been important to me artistically in terms of asking questions about the freedom of expression and and people 
get to interact with each other in spaces. I made a feature film in 2015, Singapore Minstrel, about Roy Payama, who mm. was one of the first street performers of Singapore. Watching Roy do his thing, I had a hard time imagining that he was in Singapore because he's amazing. <laughs> when you say Singapore needs artists, Singapore needs artists like him because there's such a freedom of, of expression that is both humble and audacious at mm -hmm. the same time. Thank you. This is his the book of his uh, writing and images that I just published. Uh-huh. So for listeners, Salty is sharing the cover of the book Street Found with a self-portrait of the busker, artist, trickster, Roy Payamal. Maybe if we listen to a snippet from Singapore Minstrel, your film about Roy, listeners can get a taste of Roy the artist and the film. If you have a chance to have freedom in your life, you know, would you, would you want that? I just want to show people madness, also to shock them, you know, to surprise them, because nobody would expect a busker to do that. It's actually news, it's what's happening in the street. My good old friend Jeffrey from the old days. I don't make a single cent out of busking. Look. Just look, just look at my equipment. I was once a dream. I lived till a hundred forty-five. And then one day they came and cut me down. His work is so good that I see him as a fellow artist that it can be put in the museum as well, if only people know him. I like to see myself as same as everybody else. And I hope people see me as everybody else, you know. They had tried to protect me. It's not allowed to cut me down. But all these working men were getting up. Yeah, I would recommend to anybody listening to this to, to go find... Singapore Minstrel, they can find it on singaporeminstrel.com. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really wonderful. It's, it's like you you get a new friend in the world that you'll probably never meet. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's a yeah. really lovely description. Part two, party time. Yeah, the question I I ask everybody is: you've described your practice. How did you come to that? What's the journey from being a kid in Singapore and and now being an artist that works all across the world. Yeah, it's hard to imagine myself as that latter description. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I feel like I'm bumbling through time and space. I grew up as a very sensitive and creative child in an upper middle class family in Singapore, uh, a Chinese family and Chinese other majority race in Singapore. So I had a certain amount of privilege in my upbringing and I had, there were no artists in the family. And I went to 
top schools in what is considered one of the world's most stressful punishing education systems. And I think I was, my soul was born with a lot of imagination and a lot of curiosity for people and relationships. And as a child and a teenager, and, and to some extent to still today, I loved to organize big parties, themed parties, I'd boss everyone around, curate the whole program, and, and I, I loved archiving family history. I'm still the family historian, family entertainer, and I love posting and finding out about people in their lives. And so in a way, I was both born to do what I do today and also spent my life honing the skills for my current work. And then I did theatre studies as a subject in high school or what we call junior college in Singapore, which is two years before college or university. Mm-hmm. And that was life-changing for me. It was like a bunch of naughty, creative teenagers who were given a lot of rain to express themselves and create pieces and things like that. And, and we never had that. We never, because we always studied literary texts, like in English literature class, but we never had an activity where we were supposed to write our own poems or anything. So there was a lot mm-hmm. of studying, but not a lot of expression through creation of one's own. So the theatre studies experience was really, it was, it shifted my life in a big way. And it was what I was waiting for and needed at that time as a 17 year old. And then I went to university and I'm specialized in photojournalism and documentary. And then I made like my final film in university was what we called a fantasy documentary on elderly love and sex in Singapore. So why don't we play a few clips from that film called Post Love. No, no more like passion, you know, not the passion kind. That time I think uh, they are not so open. It's usually I think in the locked room and then, yeah. Afraid to make sound and, and things like that. <laughs> Don't regret. Don't look back. Don't look back. That's the word. Those in love can't be together, but those not in love have to be together. This sun has gone down the hill. What more? Is there one of my best friends still, Amanda Lee Cole, who's a writer? We co-directed the film, and then after that, I went down a, a path for two years doing arts administration at the National Arts Council of Singapore. I, I know it well. <laughs> uh, oh, you work with them? Oh, don't yes, you? I did. Do you? Yes, I'm remembering now. I managed the National Arts Program for seniors back then, and that gave me a lot of connections with the senior world especially social services and then the day I joined I knew I would quit and two years later I eventually did and then I started doing more of my own work as a freelance artist I didn't know about the term social practice art and social practice socially engaged I was making little performance doing things that were with people in collaboration and then one day I decided I had to leave Singapore and put myself in a rigorous academic art environment. And I googled MFA USA. Wow. (laughs) I sat at home. And then what came up was the Portland State University Art and Social Practice MFA program. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, what is art and social practice? So 
So I did some research and then I was like, I went to their website, I read about it and I said, oh, that's me. That's exactly me. So here I am. You're very lucky. I, I did a study on what's available for people in the broad field of community, art and social practice, creative placemaking, et cetera. We came up with over 250 training and degree programs. And boy, do they define the field in different ways. So you landed in a good place, it sounds like, for yourself. Yeah, I, I did. One thing I loved about the program was how broadly it looked at and approached social forms of art. There was a space for everyone. Part three. Questions. I'm a big believer in the process of inquiry as a way of working in the world. And could you talk about how questions figure in your work? Because I know they figure prominently. Yeah, I love asking questions. Often it is easier to describe projects with questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. I think that because of my background in documentary and photojournalism in university days, I've always asked questions to people in interviews. And my parents told me that as a child, I, I was asking questions a lot, nonstop. And yeah, asking questions is a way to find out about the world and to be curious. And we can be really creative about the sorts of questions we ask, the ways that we ask those questions through the work and the work absolutely does not need to answer those questions. The questions are like premises to begin. And I think art gets to be that. It gets to be open-ended like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the world of, of art making uh, can be intimidating to some people and some artists are declarative in the way they do their work. But the sharing of a question is intrinsically an invitation and to me there's an infinite future the minute that you ask a question now yes absolutely and and i feel like my work is predicated on the possibilities of intimacy and on the possibilities of a future that we want to create together and i'm very interested in this idea of infinity yeah i see myself as someone who is finding out things i'm curious about for myself through the projects i do for example in the project the grandma reporter <laughs> which is um, a publication i started on senior women's culture across the earth i am clearly not an expert in that situation i am a curious young woman asking questions to these older women and contributing my skills of facilitation, direction, curation, design, or photography, whatever it is, and helping them to answer those questions, to be expressed in a creative form for other people to learn about the questions that we are posing, whether it's what is your favorite outfit at the age of 74, or what does masturbation mean to you at 65? <laughs> so here's an excerpt from I Am a Beautiful Beached Whale another of Salty's films touching on the unexamined questions about aging is viewed through the everyday lives and reflections of her two grandmothers. There weren't many checks. You only saw the doctor when you were near the delivery date. They would give you a card to bring along for birth. I had to chop firewood, leave it aside for a confinement, and we had chickens to eat during confinement. For the birth of my first child, we spent three ninety-five, five for the second, five for the third, and ten dollars for the fourth. 
so thrifty, weren't we? Even people tell me that. So old and still, I'm not going to die. At this age, we must die soon. An easy death is best. Every day, I pray to Grand Uncle God to please give me an easy death. My ashes are to be placed at Bright Hill Monastery. In life, I like things to be neat. When I'm gone, I, I want the same. I like things properly done. I believe we should not speak improperly or do bad things. When you're gone, others will be sad. Your children will be sad that their mother's gone. They'll cry. Grandchildren will cry with much suffering. Grandma is dead. But I won't know a thing. I'll be sleeping. How would I know a thing? Sleep, sleep, sleep. Salty, listening to your work, it's so clear that you are not an arm's-length documentarian by any means. And so you work intensely collaboratively with people as partners, not as subjects. And at least in my experience, trust is right at the center of that. Could you talk about trust as an element of your work? I think that you can talk about trust-building methodologies and, and trust-building over time. And while all those things are very important, I, for me, in my practice, I think a lot about fate and destiny and karma and why we enter each other's lives in these project situations. So there is something mystical about trust as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, why does someone see the open call to talk about intimacy for older women and decide to contact me? Mm-hmm. And then after talking on the phone for half an hour, she agrees to come for the group meeting that we're going to have and then starts to share things. And then we start developing a close personal relationship and as well as this collective relationship with the group. And I think that it is possible possible, and sometimes even easier to trust a stranger. Mm. And especially when people are coming together to talk about something that they have in common and they might all come from very different backgrounds. I've heard people in some of my projects say that they, they love hearing all these different perspectives from the other people in the project. And these are things that they don't talk to their own family or friends about, but they really enjoy coming together with these other people they barely know and that they have a strong curiosity about to share. Um, also, I think maybe trust is partly developed from this feeling that you can be yourself. And I try as much as I can to let people feel that they can fully be themselves in the spaces that I create for them. One of the projects you're referencing here, which is the the Grandma Project, could you just describe that briefly for people listening in, its genesis, and take us there? What was it like to be in those gatherings and conversations and doing the work with your collaborators there? 
I've always had a connection with older people. I was very close to my paternal grandma growing up and also my grandparents in general. And over the years, I did more and more projects with older people, starting with that one on elderly love and sex that I had mentioned. And so in 2016, in my first year in Portland, I decided to create this collaborative publication project called The Grandma Reporter, which is about senior women's culture across the earth. And I would make it in collaboration with older women in various places. It's a form that can be taken anywhere and with any theme. And it can be made in a very intense, extensive way, or it can be made in a one-hour workshop. So as a format, I I really enjoy its uh, flexibility. So the first issue was on style. And it looked at uh, self-presentation and aging. And I did it at the Hollywood Senior Center in Portland, Oregon. And uh, invited older women and one older man who was very interested in joining us. So they, they all came in their favorite outfits. And we took pictures and talked about the subject. And then I paired each of them with a younger person for the younger person to recreate their outfit in their own way and think about style and aging as well. And then that issue had other things like a Filipina grandma's underwear collection and an article about poodles. And then, so that issue was done pretty quick and easy. And then the second issue was a much more intense endeavor. And the theme was on intimacy. The idea was to investigate this taboo subject. It's something that people don't talk much about, much less among seniors or and the intention was to approach it from many different angles not just sex and also to really to convince people that hey we're not just talking about sex yeah. uh talking about your relationship with yourself with nature with friends family so many things and even physical intimacy is a big umbrella of which sex is one component so in a way it's it was an invitation for older women to think about their closeness to life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially now as we struggle to emerge from our caves into this, I don't know, tentative quasi-COVID landscape that we're living in. Yeah, intimacy is a subject that has is being approached a lot by many artists today. And yeah, I think at its heart, it's about closeness to life and and this eroticism that Audre Lorde talks about. That has been a guiding concept as I explore intimacy in my work. So uh, about 10 women were part of the project in, in different capacities and I invited four other women artists to join the project and they were in their 20s and 30s, like me, I'm in my 30s. So it was an intergenerational project, intergenerational gathering of women in a little classroom at the Hollywood Senior Center while people were playing um, cards outside or having tea time. We were inside talking about sexual needs and and talking about friendships and nature and and so many different things. And so it felt transgressive in some way and and Mm -hmm. very exciting and very intimate in its own ways. And the women that joined were all very different, but they all shared the desire to excavate these thoughts from themselves and share it with the world, which was 
very moving to me. And then we split into many different small group projects. So all the collaborators could choose which of the sub projects they wanted to join based on their interests. Maybe someone wants to join the, the one on movement and touch and someone else wants to think about scores for intimacy. And then we also had a senior women's erotica club, my favorite part of it. And I facilitated that. And I brought in senior erotica and we would read it like a book club style and then give critique and feedback, how we relate to it or don't. I brought in prompts for discussion, like a vibrator, dildo, pictures and and such. And then I invited them to write erotica. One of them did and the others declined too. So what happened was that I wrote the piece of erotica, the main, the big piece, which felt fitting in the end because I was the, the curious young woman who wanted to know more about this world with these older women but I wrote it in consultation with them so like they gave their critique and feedback on like the terms being used and the storyline and together we created a piece that was about a kind of emotional intimacy that we were not seeing in the pieces that were out there Mm. so we created what we wanted out in the world and that's exciting and I would like to continue with this senior women's erotica club actually and what I gained from the whole thing personally this feeling of being in a hearth with other women and a feeling of learning about a subject that was important to me that I never had conversations about with my mother or grandmothers and so Somebody that wants to follow up and read the journal, the newspaper, the pieces that you're describing, where would they go? They can go to thegrandmareporter.com. And also what happened this year was I was commissioned by Theatre Works, which is a Singaporean Mm -hmm. uh, arts organization, to make a Singaporean version of the intimacy issue. But it manifested mainly as uh, short films and live stream performances on an online, uh, interactive online platform. Mm. But there's also the companion publication, which is the Grandma Reporter issue three on intimacy. Great. From the perspectives of Singaporean older women. I would encourage folks to take a look at The Grandma Reporter and Salty's many other projects, which are documented on saltythunder.net. I would also invite our listeners to join us for the second half of our conversation with Salty on our next episode, number 37, where we'll be exploring the prison art world, arts museums, and the hidden geography of the Bunyan Nation. Thanks to Salty for this week's show and all of you who have tuned in. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. And if you're curious about what that is, check us out at www.artandcommunity.com. The show is written and produced by yours truly, Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscapes are by the incomparable... Judy Munson. Our editor-in-chief is Andre Nebe, and as always, our inspiration rises up from the mysterious Uke 235. So, until next time, stay well and spread the good word. And before we sign off, a reminder that the second part of Salty Story airs on March 6th, so have a listen. <laughs>